gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Delighted to have you guys here. Uh, delighted to be back in Washington after a pretty grim re- week last week. Um, and um, delighted to have a first-time guest on this podcast that we wanted to have for a very long time. Um, he is a colleague of mine at AEI. He's an AI fellow, but he has been working night and day opening up the 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 Paris Satellite Office of the American Enterprise Institute. Um, he also was recently announced to be a Guggenheim Fellow, which sounds really cool, and I think that means you get to skateboard inside the Guggenheim, which everybody's always wanted to do. Um, <laughs> he's a contributor to the Atlantic, and he's going to be a visiting professor at Bard. Uh, his most recent book is Self-Portrait in Black and White, Unlearning Race, and our guest is Thomas Chatterton Williams. Thomas, welcome to The Remnant. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I think there's a good good place to start and just me asking the questions I'm curious about because, again, we haven't had to have been able to have lunch in the dining room at AEI or anything. Why are you in Paris? Uh, that's a good question to start with. My wife is French. Um, there's a kind of uh, joke that all of us Americans tell each other when we run into each other. Also, non-Americans, just anyone non-French who's living in Paris. When you meet, you say, how did you end up here? And inevitably, it's never for work. No one moves to France for work unless maybe you're Mark Jacobs or something and you work in fashion at, at a yeah. certain level. Otherwise, you move to Paris for love. So my wife is French and I moved here in 2011. So it's been, it's been a little while. Wow. But now I, I really consider myself more of a transatlantic commuter, to paraphrase uh, James Baldwin. I bet you, though, like just and I know this more. I mean, I've been to Paris quite a few times, but I probably know this better because of my wife and mine's. Uh, addiction to various cooking shows the other exception other than fashion would probably be young apprentice chefs who want to uh pad their resume for having worked in some french restaurant right um because it seems like a lot do that they come and go and and people and people working on on vineyards for sure long-term expats they all seem to be here for (laughs) for love that's it uh it's funny my wife grew up in fairbanks alaska and, and she would often meet when she would meet people uh, from Alaska, you know, around, they would not quite as ubiquitous as, as the thing in Paris, but they would ask, how did you get out? (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, uh, you know, one of the things, uh, that, you know, you write a lot about that I, um, I'm deeply interested in, but at the same time, I kind of resent talking about it. Like, I hate the idea of having, you know, black, guests on the podcast to talk about black things right and because it's not it just it seems constraining and and uh there's a certain condescension or ghettoization about this kind of stuff but fortunately one of the nice things about your book and 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 your writing is that it's all about rebelling against that and i kind of see you as a um uh an heir to albert murray um, if that's fair, um, which uh, I, that's a, uh, that's a huge compliment. I would think you would take as a compliment, um, certainly in that tradition. And so, uh, I, you know, a lot of people don't know who Albert Murray was and I'd be kind of like, I would like love to hear your, just your take on like, who is Albert Murray or who was Albert Murray and why should people, you know, 
follow him and what are Omni Americans? Yeah, Albert Murray is a is a real um, national treasure that uh, unfortunately never became a household name, though he had, as he would insist, he had quite a quite a good life and he wasn't feeling sorry for himself. But he had either the fortune or the misfortune to be um, lifelong best friends since college, since Tuskegee, with Ralph Ellison, who happened to go on to write uh, <laughs> what many people consider is uh, one of the three greatest American novels, Invisible Man. And so he always uh, uh, overshadowed uh, Murray um, on the literary scene, even though it seems, uh, certainly to me, but to a lot of people that knew them as well, it seems like they shared a lot of uh, the same sensibility and much of that sensibility might have actually uh, come from Murray. Um, and Ellison was more known for it, but it certainly was something that they at least shared or was more Murray's. Um, they founded Jazz at Lincoln Center together. Both were mentors to, to Stanley Crouch and Wynton Marsalis. So they've really had a huge impact on a kind of black culture that I think is mischaracterized as conservative. Um, but it's, it's, it's certainly one that is very pro-democratic, pro-American, um, not separatist. So what Albert Murray gets at with his notion of the omni-American is that black people are, um, as true Americans as can be, have been here since the beginning, often contained within themselves, the European, the Native American, and the African in this composite figure, which is actually all of America is this kind of mongrel population and that we kind of deny that mongrelness um, at our own peril. Uh, it actually robs us of the, the really rich cultural contributions that uh, people have woven into the American tapestry together. Um, and through what he calls um, productive antagonism, you know, these kind of, there's not something bad about people having different ethnic backgrounds, but these combine into a larger American good that we should, we should learn to, to recognize and to celebrate. And so he was, you know, a student of and philosopher of the blues. And he felt that the blues, which is what roots jazz and all the other kind of forms of music that have come since, this blues sensibility is, is, is the, the Black American's fundamental contribution to American culture. And it's not simply a music, it's a philosophy, it's a way of life, it's a kind of stoicism, it's a way of um, accepting the cards you're dealt and playing the best hand you can with a little, with a little finesse as well. So it's funny, I... Um... I had an Albert Murray phase 20 something, maybe 25 oh, really? years ago. Yeah. And, and it's funny cause I had, I had developed this theory, you know, it was at the level of one level deeper than just pure punditry. Um, but not deeply thought out and researched, but I was working on this theory about how African-Americans were in some ways a sort of, in a weird way, a model European uh, minority in the sense that, so like the history of Jews in, in Europe is that, uh, as a middleman minority, they were useful to the crown and also demonized by the crown, right? They were, they were protected class for, you know, to do financial services in effect. Um, and they were also demonized because they were into financial services, right? It was like the, us <laughs> the usury laws said that Christians couldn't lend money. But the Jews can do it, so they made Jews do it, and then they demonized Jews as greedy moneylenders um, because that was the role that they, one of the roles they were assigned. And uh, but that's not the. I mean, I'm not talking about world black finance. My point was is that one of the things that made Jews historically liberal in the way we talk about it in America is 
as, as a matter of survival, they saw themselves, at least in a lot of countries, they saw the centralized state as their protector from local populations. And so, you know, there's this old joke of only the czar knew is something like, you know, the Jews in the shtetl would say because the local Cossacks or, you know, the pogroms would come and they were supposed to be protected by the czar and that kind of thing. And if you look in the American political context, African-Americans, particularly in the South, had every reason to look to the centralized state as their protector from local tyrannies. And, you know, that's what Abraham Lincoln, you know, was this figure who, who helped smash local tyrannies. The Eisenhower and the federal government in the 1960s smashed local tyrannies. And um, so this idea that somehow African-Americans would look, that it was somehow, it didn't, that somehow it was a mark against them when their entire lived historical experience was, to, was that it was local state governments that beat the crap out of them and treated them horribly. And it was the federal government that rode in and interceded on their behalf. That's a very European model. And I remember writing about this and talking about this and so on. So you really should look at, at, at Albert Murray because he kind of makes the opposite case that in fact, the quintessential American is the African American. And because of this sort of, and we're using mongrel in the, most positive sense possible, right? I mean, I, I, I actually no relation to Albert Murray, but I actually think Bill Murray's speech in Stripes about you know uh, we are the we are the wretched refuse um, is one of the great democratic speeches in all of cinema. But um, uh, um, anyway, so I, I I really like the Albert Murray point, and one of the things I like about it is it's just utter hostility to the sort of lazy categorizations that you get from identity politics that says I have that you can sum up someone's identity based upon some single abstract factor like the color of your skin, which seen from another perspective is actually a very close to the definition of a sort of racism. And, um, and as, as anyway, so I've, I, I, I went through this big phase and I, I think about Murray often, but every time I bring him up with people, um, I'm no expert on him. I just, people don't know who he was. And, and so it was nice to have somebody on who could dilate on, on him. So. Yeah. It's, it's a really shame. I mean, it's interesting what you say about the kind of, um, protection from the federal government that kind of blacks and Jews have in common. Um, Murray of course was very interested in regionalism and regional cultural differences. So, he often thought of America in this large mongrel way, but was very interested in the kind of identity you get from being in Harlem or being in the South and was often interested in, I think, um, pulling apart some of the kind of facile ways that we talk about uh, the South or the North and showing that, you know, there was a much more, he, he loved the word complicated and there was a much more complicated lived reality, even in a place like Alabama where, uh, where he's from. Uh, than, than often was represented in the popular imagination or by what he called, um, you know, the social science fiction of the day that taught you who you are, what your identity was based on, you know, um, statistics or, or a pie chart. Both he and Ellison kind of made variations of a point on, you know, I don't need a pie chart to tell me what it means to be black in America. <laughs> you know, I have the blues for that. I have my, I have my eyes and ears, you know, <laughs> I have books. Um, I talked to people. So I, I really, that always attracted me to him is that he was one of the first and most, um, 
unflinching um, black voices I became aware of in my 20s who was pushing back against the kind of um, authority of statistics that always felt like they missed my own lived experience. He kind of gave me permission, even more than Ellison did. Murray gave you permission to say, wait a minute, that's that's bunk. Uh, uh, that, that's not how my life has, you're not going to tell me that's my life, you know, and he never denied the idea that there was racism or that he experienced it, but he thought that it was profoundly insulting to to make that the sum total of, uh, of a complex experience uh, by people who had actually like shown great uh, strength and courage to, to transcend harsh st- circumstances that he would say are fundamentally human circumstances. They're not, the, the, these are the harsh circumstances of life, specifically in this time and place they happen to black people in this way. But what we're talking about is human problems and those never go away. And nobody has a perfect hand, no matter what their color is. And so I, I, that just always really, I found that empowering as opposed to to much of the most fashionable messages of of of, of my era, certainly, which are uh, profoundly disempowering, I find. Yeah, there's a great line from Murray where he says, or he's a critic of Uncle Tom's Cabin, which I didn't think anyone in America was allowed to be, and I'm I'm not saying I am, but like he had the chops to be able to do it. He says, "Look, James Baldwin was too." Yeah, he says, "Look, you know, like like the whole point of the book is." To say that slavery was really bad. Of course, slavery was really bad, but that's not enough to sustain a good novel. Um, which, <laughs> right, I did, <laughs> which I think is a great <laughs> criticism, which I'm never going to make, uh, but I thought it was interesting, <laughs> to, you know. Yeah, so, you know, like, one of the things that, that I, I guess we're just sort of, I'm, I'm sort of talking around the thing. You have this, you know, you have this that, that famous locution that you're declared to yourself ex black. What does that mean? What does that mean to you? And um, how is it received from people who, let's just say, that phrase clangs off their ears a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it's it's obviously a, a sort of a rhetorical provocation. It can be most generously understood in the context of the book, where I'm making a sustained case that um, I was raised in an American culture that slots people um, into identity boxes based on color categories that really don't correspond to most people's skin complexion mm-hmm. and that are organized around this binary of black and white with, with, with people of color kind of, you know, sliding somewhere between those two poles. Um, it's rooted in slave plantation logic. Um, it's based on, you know, the, the, the old and very oppressive laws of hypodescent which were, you know, organizing racial identity based on who can inherit property, based on who is free or unfree. Um, of course, the idea of the one drop rule that a drop of black blood makes a person black is something that became a source of great pride and solidarity. And, and you can witness, ex, you know, really extraordinary kinds of love that manifest out of this kind of kinship. But it's a kinship rooted in oppression. And I think that actually to, to, to get beyond racism, you can't really get to the place that most people profess to want to go to beyond racism uh, while clinging onto these categories that are inherently compromised by their by their um, by their basis in in slavery. It's just you cannot rid uh, terms like black and white from the hierarchical implications that they contain. Um, so I said, I you know, I'm just one person. I obviously. I'm I'm trying to convince as many people as I can um, that these categories don't serve us well. 
and maybe never did. Um, but I, in protest, um, am no longer going to partake in what my late friend Stanley Crouch called the all-American skin game. I'm no longer going to slot myself into those boxes. I'm going. I'm not going to say I'm ex-black because my very uh, light-skinned, blue-eyed children are now white and I want to be white. Uh, I, I'm saying that these categories don't contain the complexity of our identities don't serve us well, and I don't want to uh, uphold them by participating in that kind of thinking anymore. Um, I still culturally participate in what I think of as a kind of black, lowercase b, black tradition. Um, I certainly haven't changed the the people I hang out with. My I, I haven't disowned my father or stopped listening to um, the kind of music that I love to listen to, but I'm no longer going to organize my thinking i'm no longer going to allow myself to exist in a kind of racist logic that i think um really harmed my father and harmed my ancestors and and i want to make a break with one of the there are a bunch of recurring themes um on this podcast going back to the beginning and and one of the main ones is how i'm against all monocausal explanations of anything right um um no one goes to a car dealership and says i want a red car right i mean there are just <laughs> other factors involved um very few well-adjusted sane men say the one thing i want is a tall wife right and you don't care about any of the other variables and <laughs> and uh and when you when you reduce anything to a single factor um, you are rendering invisible all sorts of interesting things, right? And I, I often think that 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 the way we've started talking about race is is an attempt to recreate notions of class from Europe in an American context. And there's this great chapter in in one of Daniel Borston's books where he talks about how um, when Europeans visited early America, a lot of them were disgusted because they would walk down the street in these cities and they wouldn't be able to tell from people's clothes what they did for a living, right? Because <laughs> in, in, in Budapest, the milkmaids dressed like milkmaids and the plumbers dressed like plumbers and the, and the butchers dressed like butchers. Everyone had um, essentially a, a, a cultural uniform for who they were. And in America, you couldn't tell from one look at somebody where they belonged on the social hierarchy. And, um, and that's one of the things that I think is one of the great things about America is this sort of dynamism and entrepreneurialism that allows, that requires you to take people as you find them. And it's always driven me crazy. Why the sort of reductionist notion of race, which says that, all I know about so all I need to know about somebody is their skin color. If I actually operated like that in real life, forget being called a racist. It would just be incredibly rude, right? And you know, boring, and really boring, and and also just flatly untrue. In 2022, it's really untrue. I mean, it's really interesting what you mentioned because uh, Tocqueville, Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, who is really one of the, if not the shrewdest observer outside observers of American society, um, early on. Um, coming from his aristocratic background in France, came to came to America, and he observed in Democracy in America that this was one of the 
actual real stumbling blocks of American society that he didn't see how it could be overcome was that to an extent, the Indian and, and to an extreme, the African wore their unfreedom in their very physical characteristics. So mm-hmm. what you were saying to Tocqueville applied to white men, mm-hmm. but merely glancing at a person right. with brown skin alerted you to the fact that they were... So it is actually the point you were making that race fulfills a class function. You don't need to look at what the clothes are. You just know someone's a second-class citizen um, who can never be an equal to a white man by by seeing that they're brown. This is a kind of vision of America that a lot of people on the left and who would call themselves anti-racist kind of view as permanent and unchanging, no matter what has happened in the intervening years since uh, Tocqueville made that observation in the 1800s. This is what I really find myself uh, bristling at. America in 2022 really is starting to be much more like what you uh, described, but um, applied to everybody. You really cannot walk around a place like Washington, D.C. or New York City, size somebody up by the pigmentation Right. And the epidermis and the width of their nose or lips and know anything about what they do for a living, how much money they have in their bank account, what their educational background is, what their political views are. This is all to the good. I want to live in a society where the way you look tells me as little as possible about who you are as an individual. And I think we've really made extraordinary progress in that direction, even if it's imperfect. Um, so that is a really interesting kind of way in which I think um, American society is much more dynamic and free than European society, which still is very much locked in a kind of um, class structure where people um, don't necessarily think of themselves as transcending the class they were born into and don't necessarily um, believe that they or their children will live so differently than their ancestors did in whatever situation they found themselves. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, just cards on the table. I come from, I'm increasingly sympathetic to calling myself a classical liberal, although I still call myself a conservative. I don't think there's a contradiction, (laughs) but I want to, you know, uh, but the people coming for the label conservative are not classical liberals. And, and so that's one of my fights. And that's why this podcast is called the remnant. Um, but, uh, I'm just a huge fan of bourgeois norms. I just, (laughs) that's who I am. And like, and I think bourgeois norms, I'm, I'm a Deirdre McCloskey person i think bourgeois norms are basically what lifted humanity out of poverty i think that murray would agree with you on that yeah no for sure and um uh you know delayed gratification self-discipline wanting your kids to have a better have more options and better life than you did um uh, honest dealing truth telling all those kinds of things and what drives me Great. And so like as sort of a bourgeois norm guy, I have much less problem judging people by the clothing that they wear, even though it's an imperfect thing. <laughs> um, and, and a huge problem with judging people by the color of their skin, right? Because, you know, it's like, oh, that guy's left handed. He's evil, which is actually, you know, where there's that sinister thing, right? Uh, in the meaning of left handedness. But uh, it's such an arbitrary thing to decide someone is a, to judge their character um, not on their behavior or anything like that, but like there actually are choices that go into how you dress. And it's not like I'm some Bo Brummel who cares passionately about high fashion or whatever, but like I can at least make some sort of Sherlock Holmesian deductions about the kind of, from that, the clothes that you wear. And um, I'm unaware of 
any really meaningful th- things I can choose choose to think about somebody's character um, based upon their ethnicity um, or frankly, you know, their sex or gender or any of that kind of stuff. Um, and I think the answer to a lot of the sort of identity politics madness we have is to lean back into bourgeois norms. And the thing that terrifies me that the left is doing and parts of the racist right are doing is to suggest that those bourgeois norms are white people things. And, you know, Barack Obama denounced that there are lots of smart, decent left-wingers who I disagree with on all sorts of things who still recognize the evil of that problem of, you know, if you're going to start saying that, you know, there's someone on the San Francisco school board who got recalled, who said that the problem with the Asian students at, in their high schools was that they had an internalized whiteness. Right. And if we're going to start telling people that working hard in school and getting good grades means you're a sellout to your race, we're screwed. Yeah. I mean, it sounds to me like what you're talking about is the kind of bourgeois um, and classically liberal belief in and respect for the individual, right? That um, the thing that the unit that matters most is the individual and that person is free and should not be judged um, based on arbitrary membership in some larger abstraction. Um, and what the racists and the anti-racists both kind of agree on these days in a way that's startling and, and really disconcerting is that it's the category itself that matters most and that can never be transcended. And so if you're Asian, then you're supposed to belong, depending on who's telling the story, to a category like people of color. And so if you exhibit certain characteristics, you're, you're being uh, an inauthentic member of the category you're uh, intended to belong to. And so you have a kind of internalized uh, self-hatred or whiteness. And, you know, th- these like um, characteristics of discipline or bourgeois um, habits of success that you're describing, that those, because they're associated with a kind of European industrial revolution or civilization, that those are fundamentally and inherently white as opposed to behaviors that successful individuals exhibit wherever you find them. And, and, and that's what I think was so interesting about to bring it back once more to Murray and Ellison is their kind of discussion of the kind of discipline that's, that they saw as fundamentally rooted in, um, in, in a kind of black culture that they were very proud of. Um, and, and, and it's a kind of mastery of the self and of circumstance with very little that they would see is very much in that tradition of, of, of the bourgeois values you're talking about and that allow for a kind of elegance, a restraint, uh, composure, um, and the idea that these things could be taken away from people who are non-white and kind of handed over to whiteness, whether it's for an anti-racist purpose or not, it really does mirror and amplify what I think of as the very worst kind of racism, because the white supremacists agree with that, too. They think that right. those are their qualities, too. Yeah. No, and also, I mean, you know, it's a very Deirdre McCloskey point, but like, I think there there were some unique things to the, you know, to the protestant reformation and the protestant work ethic and all that kind of stuff but you're not going to tell me that like south koreans or japanese people don't encourage their kids you know, for work hard delayed gratification be you know be honest gratification <laughs> yeah i mean come on i mean it's like uh or or for that matter you know you know the i think the number one graduate degree holding ethnicity or at least immigrant nigerians. ethnicity is nigerians you know and the, and 
my late sister-in-law was from Haiti and you know, the, the Haitians I knew, you know, it's like, it was like that old living color skit with Haman where, where the, the West yeah. Indian black guy had 19 jobs and he was yelling at his son for only having 14 jobs or something like that. Yeah. Um, there's plenty of that in the African-American community too. And just sending the cultural signal through the elites that have glommed on to the sort of the woke stuff that it's really destructive. It's uh, so bad. If, if you would actually internalize that and believe that it would be as bad as believing the worst uh, racist propaganda you could get from Richard Spencer or somebody. I mean, yeah. it's really, it's mimicking the same kind of habits of thought that put some people at a higher level than others. Uh, I mean, it's startling to me that this has kind of become the, the accepted um, way of talking about racial difference uh, in the post kind of George Floyd racial reckoning moment that we're in now. I mean, the, the, the idea that you could have at the Smithsonian, you know, not to use an example that gets brought up all the time, but it is, I think, really important that the Smithsonian uh, Museum put up, you know, a kind of list of pillars of white supremacy culture. And some of them were things like punctuality and, right. you know, worship of the written word, objectivity, things that it's really insulting to think that these are things that black people and other people of color are supposedly divorced from. So it's funny. I mean, I, I've not been following French politics too closely, but um, I like, I mean, let's just say, be clear, in, in like domestic American politics, I hate the sort of the, what I call Alinsky envy, where the right now wants to do to the left what it thinks the left did to the right and all that kind of stuff. And like fighting fire with fire is not to me an elevated or, or, or enlightened mode of discourse and all that stuff. At the same time, I am enjoying Macron and various French people bitching and moaning about dangerous ideas, escaping our universities and infecting French culture. Because they did that to us, you know, like like we get the woke stuff from the crap that escaped the French universities and came here, um, you know. If we, and then and then was kind of poorly poorly understood over here too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like the Foucault stuff or manipulated. Know, yeah, it's it's it it's it's metastasized or we you know it's it's like a weird subvariant of COVID kind of thing and what it's become. But um, it, it just as a because you were sort of a. Stranger as, strange. A as an offended French person once told me, yes, pizza came from Italy, but the thing being served in pizza, <laughs> you can't blame <laughs> that on Italy. <laughs> See, I have, I have, I, I you, it's funny you mentioned that. So like, I think there's a whole group of foods that I like. I mean, I don't eat them much anymore, but that I like that I like in and of themselves and they only fail if you compare them to what they what there's the platonic version of what, what they're supposed like, to be. <laughs> yeah. Like, like big Macs are good, but if you think, but they're not burgers and Domino's pizza right. is enjoyable, but it's not pizza. And, um, <laughs> and I, but I will say that like the best American pizza, I would argue is better than the kind of pizza you usually get in Italy these days. Cause yeah. Slice know. it at Joe's in, in New York. Yeah, yeah. I agree. That um, is going to be better for me than just about anything you find in Rome or Naples. I think that's right. Um, so you're kind of a stranger in a strange land, right? Um, um, where does the, how is the wokeness thing? How are these issues played out? What has surprised you about how these kinds of issues work in France versus the U S that's a good question. I mean, I'm actually, I've been working on a piece for a little while now for the Atlantic, trying to make sense of this and compare the, the two 
cultures. Um, it's really interesting because it's almost like France, in many ways, musters the right arguments and has the right response to to the crisis of wokeness, which is a real problem in America. But the more I've lived here and really paid attention is is not really a huge problem in France. It's more like they talk about it an extraordinary amount. They develop very good uh, responses to it. But it's almost like a lot of them are playing a game where it's like, imagine if wokeness was a problem here, <laughs> like it is in America. Imagine if cancel culture were here. Here's how we would react. But it's like, France is really not woke. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've really come to understand that. And I'm a real, um, I hate the term or whatever, but whatever we mean by wokeness, I'm a critic of it. I think it's really like, um, it, it's really damaged our institutional life uh, in America. But I have to be honest, uh, these things don't necessarily exist in France. I mean, there's not an enormous amount of um, tolerance for it. And the kind of voices that are pushing identity politics here are doing so in a very modest way that would barely register in America, and they're given none of the deference. Um, so it's interesting to see the kind of muscular reaction all the way to the level of the president that has been um, that has been marshaled against it, except when you start to think of it in terms of one thing that is different. In France, you can't separate the discourse around wokeness from real Islamist uh, terror that has affected this society. I mean, in the 10 years that I've lived here, there have been extraordinary attacks. The fundamental difference is that France experienced extraordinary Islamism, jihadism on its own soil in a way that, you know, America had 9-11, but France had a sustained kind of series of very gruesome attacks. Yeah. Um, 2015 was one of the most uh, horrific years I've ever experienced. I mean, that you had the roving massacres uh, near my home here, just in in cafes where um, where I go. I mean, it was yeah. very tangible to a lot of French people. In Nice, you had a massacre uh, of a truck driver mowing down pedestrians, and then just in tw- just after George Floyd, you had um, a Chechen refugee. Um, taking identity politics to the absolute extreme, getting excited by a Twitter mob that somebody had insulted his, somebody he never met had insulted his identity group. Um, and, and, and that being a teacher named Samuel Patti and that Chechen um, refugee coming to the school and beheading him on the street outside. So this kind of, there's a kind of outsize uh, antagonism towards wokeness in France in a particularly not woke and rather culturally conservative context, but it's rooted in a very real political problem where identity politics gets violent in a way that it actually doesn't in America and probably hasn't at least since the 60s, if, if ever it got that violent. So it's interesting to think about the this kind of other variable that makes the French uh, conversation very um, very compelling, actually, for why you don't want to give at, basically, you have a very strong argument for why you have to stick to principle and not bend on identity politics, because identity politics is what um, fragments society in ways that can spin out of control and get extraordinarily bloody. And they have these memories, of course, um, from other conflicts in the last century that uh, that Americans don't really have as well. One of the things, I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong, you've been living there for a long time, um, but one of the things I think a lot of Americans don't appreciate is how good we are at assimilation, you know? Exactly, um, uh, yeah. We, and one of the great, great things about America that, ma- that makes us different than Europe and almost every other civilization 
is our capacity for forgetting crap. Like, you know, <laughs> you, you, and I mean that in the most positive way. It's like, you know, you, I have Irish friends who remember some atrocity from 300 or 500 years ago as if it was yesterday. And Lord knows that exists in the Middle East, right? And and there's a lot of that throughout Europe. And um, I don't know African culture well enough, but I assume that there's quite a bit of that there. And there's good, and and in America, it's like the whole, first of all, there's a sele- self-selection bias, right? It's the people who let, who came here and said, I don't want any more of that crap in the first place created the original culture, at least for, for white people. There's a, some fascinating stuff about how um, our culture was in large part started by second sons because in primogeniture, firstborn sons got all the stuff and then you were highly educated second born um, and you wanted to make your mark in the world and you couldn't do it in your homeland because your brother got everything. So you went off to either you joined the church or you joined the army or you came to the new world. And and there's this institutionalized thing about forgetting. And the problem with Europe is way too much remembering. And um, and the remembering fights against assimilation. I have a French friend who I asked her once, and she, you know, travels or lives in fairly semi-elite circles in France, or at least she used to. And it's like, how often do you actually meet Muslim people at like a book party or a gallery opening or some fancy cocktail thing and she was like almost never yeah if we had the equivalent i mean that's just not the way it's just not the way america works at things do you find yourself that you're often the only person of color in the room um how do french people treat you you know do you do you encounter this stuff or because you have you can speak american you kind of cut through some of it that's the, I mean, you've you very accurately described something that I constantly try to point out to both Americans and French people who are interested in some of these questions. Um, on paper, France, I think you would have to say, has the right idea about how to make a multi-ethnic society work. You know, everybody's a French citizen. We don't recognize race. We are officially a colorblind society. Um Privately, you be Jewish. Privately, you be Muslim, and you be respected. Privately, you be Christian, but don't bring that in the public sphere where everybody meets as a citizen. However, even in the kind of very left-wing liberal elite cultural circles of Paris, um, where everybody votes left, you your friend is right. You don't run into Muslims. You don't mm-hmm. run into Arabs very often it's you you would remember if you did oftentimes those people are very successful um and you almost never run into to black africans mm-hmm. uh let alone asians um it, it is just these are these are extremely white spaces but to call it um structural racism or something like that is imposing an american framework that doesn't really work either because you don't really meet people from the provinces in these spaces either. Mm-hmm, you don't meet mm-hmm. white people from out who, who don't have generations of background in Paris. I mean, it's an old aristocratic society that is hard for immigrants to break into. It's closed networks. These are people that are friends with people they went to, you know, middle school with for the rest of their lives. And, 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 and how do you have a complicated conversation about how those types of social networks work, which are not, which reinforce or reproduce kind of racial divisions, but they're not rooted in a racial division. It's that mm-hmm. 
these are people who exist in a social context that happens to be overwhelmingly white. Um, it's not the same thing as, as, as in America where you have a former slave society and the color line was policed in certain ways. Um, however, Americans don't seem to appreciate that it's exactly, as you said, that we really do do a good uh, job of assimilating. When I'm in New York, in the equivalent spaces as in Paris, it would be it would be noteworthy if you didn't see black people, Latino people, Asian people, Arab people. I mean, it's just normal that you run into these people at restaurants and museums and, uh, on boards. Um, so that lived reality um, is really, I think, um, something that America gets quite right, even if we don't get on paper right all the time. And I'm even going to say outside of elite spaces, you know, I've been traveling around the South uh, recently um, doing some reporting for a book I'm working on. And, and, and in very non-elite spaces, you see that Americans live with each other in a way that's actually rather healthy. You see, I was in Austin, Texas or Atlanta, Georgia, and you see that there are Latinos, Blacks and Whites in the same restaurant eating with each other, interacting with each other in informal ways that I think make the reality of a multi-ethnic society tangible in a way that it kind of it remains abstract in France. My own personal experience, not to go on too long with this question, but my own personal experience is that um, what has felt so liberating to me about living in Paris and what certainly is something that other Black expatriates have um, noticed um, since the GIs were coming over and since the writers and jazz people were coming over last century is that my primary identity uh, here in France, no matter what people think of my physical characteristics, is that I'm American. It's obvious from my body language and as soon as I open my mouth. And so I actually have something that I think a lot of Black Americans don't experience back home, which is that I don't often think of myself first and foremost racial in racial terms. Um, I'm very aware of, of national terms, of cultural terms, linguistic terms that um, separate me from the people I'm with. But those are things that are, when you're an American in France, you... Um, it's something that the French like and they treat you with a level of respect. You're coming from a country that they esteem, uh, especially when you work in a field like, um, like, you know, the literary arts or journalism or things like this, they really have a lot of love for that. Um, they've also have had a long tradition of liking black American culture and kind of feeling superior to white Americans by not having this provincial racism that they think of as a Yankee problem. So, I don't know. I, I, I've, I, I've found that, you know, it's something that, you know, you wrestle with is James Baldwin wrote very poignantly in the discovery of what it means to be an American, um, that you realize that somebody else here occupies a position in society that you might have occupied back home, but that it's not you. And so it gives you this kind of a distance and also, you know, a, a way of looking at your own culture, maybe a little bit um, more clearly. You can see also what it gets right. Yeah. So it's funny. Like, this is a long, another longstanding riff on this podcast, but like I often point out that there's a reason why blacks, Canadians, Jews, and gays are wildly disproportionately represented in stand-up comedy. And it's because, uh, I mean, the Canadian example, I think is kind of the most interesting because <laughs> there's so many Canadian comedians and actors who were drenched growing up in American TV but they were watching it outside the fishbowl. And so they mm -hmm. can see the weird connections that if you're growing up, you know, fish don't know they're wet. Right. So like <laughs> one of the weird things about Americans is we actually don't think of ourselves as having a culture often. And, yeah. you know, we just think this, Oh, this is the way things are. Cause we're that it's a, yeah. it's a weird, arrogant provincialism about Americans. And 
you have to go live someplace else to find out, no, there is an American thing. Because like, if you run into Canada, Canadians in Europe and you say, oh, it's the same thing. The Canadians get pissed. Um, but <laughs> yeah, they do. It's like, like, I mean, it's sort of a James Baldwin kind of point, which is that the minority cultures have to know their own culture and know the majority culture. Exactly. So they're fluent in both, and that bilingualism gives them a, sort of an inherent advantage. And I've often argued that being a if you can stay a conservative kid and go to four years of college at an elite school, you'll come out just a little sharper because the best learning is Socratic, where you have your assumptions questioned by the professor. And if you're a really smart, liberal, progressive kid, and all you're hearing is stuff that enforces your confirmation biases from your professor you're not questioning yourself in the way that like a conservative kid who doesn't want what the professor is saying to be true. And so they sort of engage it in a deeper level. And it just, it's, it's amazing to me when I go, you know, like I lived in Prague for very little, not, nothing close to the amount of time you lived there, but like lived in Prague for a while. And you discover that American culture is a thing that is very, very distinct from Swedish culture and French culture and even Canadian oh, yeah. culture. And oh yeah. And that's one of the things that just drives me crazy when I see people reducing, you know, white culture to whiteness. I mean, like it's it's the same problem right. of monocausal explanations for things that just render invisible so many other more important aspects of identity and of of culture. You know, I agree with you so so strongly. The idea of um, monolithic whiteness is relatively recent. I mean. 100 years ago, there were pretty firm distinctions of, of ethnic differences, and even what some people would have argued were racial differences right. within just Europeans and, and whites. Um, the idea that my wife, for example, who's, you know, Parisian, just goes to Italy and says, ah, other white people. <laughs> she thinks like, these, these are Italians. Are, if, they're, if they're in the North, they're very different than if they're in the South. And, yeah. you know, like, they certainly aren't the same as her. And she doesn't feel when she goes to Sweden that she's around her people. I mean, this is, it's a very strange thing to think that all of these people are simply participating in whiteness. One of my favorite lines also from Baldwin's, um, I believe it's dis the discovery of what it means to be an American essay is when he, you know, goes, um, He's in Paris for, you know, a short amount of time and he goes in a room and he realizes that, you know, he and the white Texas GI have something between them that neither of them have with the white European or the black African. And it's, it's, it's also, it, it exists beyond words. It's, it's body language. It's, it's all of these things that make up a, a cultural rootedness that, um, that I think that, you know, to, to simply racialize the matter and say that the white American and the Frenchman are the same and the black African and the, I mean, this is something that he profoundly rejected and for, for good reason. I, I just was thinking of the way that people actually physically move differently. Um, Americans, you can often tell someone's American by their body language. I was just in the airport in Cairo and I kind of, I had a, I forgot my wallet back in Paris um, and I was basically getting by at every stage of my trip just with like Apple pay. But I, 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 once I got to the airport in Cairo, I had to buy a visa and they, you had to buy it in cash. The bank wouldn't take Apple pay. Hmm. And I just was starting to despair because they were going to send me back to France over $25. And I just saw a figure walking 
And I was like, that person, that man, that's an American walk. <laughs> yeah. And I went up to him and I just asked, are you American? And he was like, yes, I am. And I told him my predicament <laughs> and he just, he, he, he bought my visa on the spot. I asked him if I could pay him back. He said, no, 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 it's not a problem. You know, just, just that was somebody that I knew was my compatriot Yeah, yeah, yeah. before I even got within a hundred yards of them. And I thought that was extraordinary actually. And then what was also extraordinary is as soon as I got past the visa checkpoint, went to a cafe again, forgot I couldn't pay without cash, bought a cappuccino, asked if I could use Apple Pay. And they said, of course, <laughs> it's 2022. <laughs> of course you can use Apple Pay. So I almost got sent back to France over something so stupid, but an American saved me. Um, yeah, I mean, like, forget your wife going to Italy. Tell a Japanese person visiting South Korea that, oh, yay, fellow Asians. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, it's such, it's such nonsense. Um, on the American thing, so when I was living in Prague, uh, I went there to be a starving writer. I batted 500. <laughs> I didn't starve and I didn't write. Um, but uh, me and a buddy, uh, we found this casino uh, that uh, was a huge amount of fun to go to because back then, the minimum bet was 40 crowns, which equaled about um, $1.20. So you could, if you had a bad night, you converted it into dollars in your head and say, ah, I lost 25 bucks. No big deal. But if you had a, if you had a good night, you converted it into crowns and you're like, I can eat for a week on this. So it was like win-win no matter what. And the, but the, the manager of the place, he like gave us free food and, and heavily subsidized drinks. Cause he wanted Americans there because the way Europeans gamble is a very guarded, quiet, serious thing. And the Americans are having fun and we would make jokes and we would flirt with the dealers and we would have all, you know, and he like, he wanted that vibe to attract people in. So he was subsidizing Americans to go and, and, and make a scene. And it was really interesting just to see the cultural differences in how people gamble, you know, at a blackjack, because my whole experience of gambling was, you know, Vegas or Atlantic city where it's, everybody's basically American. Um, regardless of their ethnicity or whatever. And um, I find that kind of stuff fascinating. And I, you know, it's, it's one of the main reasons why I think Americans of all races and ideologies should travel more is they'll get yeah, a greater appreciation yeah. of, of um, their own Americanness and that that's not something to be, you know, ashamed of. No, it's it's absolutely it's it's very important to see what your country gets wrong, and I think you can get a very good picture of that just um, staying like enveloped in the sense of injustice that you do observe around you in any society you live in. But it's also very very helpful, and I think uh, uh, maturing uh, to get outside of that. Um, bubble, uh, that national, uh, cultural bubble that you live in and see that injustice is, is, is universal and that your country, um, may be getting some things more right than a lot of comparable societies do. And then much better than oppressive societies, which you don't often compare yourself with. Yeah. I mean, the number of times I roll my eyes when people say, of course, in this country we do X and I'm like, okay, what's the country that you think does Y? You know, I mean, right, let's, let's exactly. explain it. They have no idea. You know, um, Seymour Martin Lipset, who was one of my intellectual heroes, uh, uh, sociologist who was like the forefront of the American exceptionalism stuff. Um, he used to argue, used to say, if you only know one country, you know, no countries. 
um, mm-hmm. because you need something to compare it to. And his, one of his you big do. things was comparing Canada to America, and there are shocking cultural differences, which is a very interesting thing, given that Canadians, you know, if if whiteness, North American whiteness means anything, Canadians are it, right? And same genetic stock as the founding generation in America, same sort of cultural milieu, same language, all that kind of stuff. It's just the only thing that separated Canadians and, and Americans is if you stayed in America in the 13 colonies is because you were essentially pro rebellion. Um, and if you went North or stayed North, you were either a royalist or a loyalist. And so the cultural differences between Canada, it's a fantastic controlled experiment in sort of cultural difference, same institutions, same religious institutions, same language, same genetic stock, you know, uh, to a large extent and yet very different cultures. That is fascinating. And that's a country that I'm actually not extremely familiar with at all. Yeah. As my wife is as Alaskan, she always, whenever she thinks something tastes bad, she just says, you know, it tastes vaguely Canadian. Um, <laughs> but there's a deep, deep abiding prejudice there. Um, so do you plan on staying in, uh, in France indefinitely? I mean, I didn't plan on staying for 10 years, so it's hard to predict uh, <laughs> the future. I, I, I'm kind of more uh, mobile than I used to be. I'm going to be teaching spring semesters at Bard. Um, so that'll give me several months of a foothold in America every year. Um, I travel back and forth quite a bit. But on the other hand, you know, I've got two kids out here. My wife is also a, also a journalist and writer. And, you know, it's a lot easier to have a reasonable quality, middle-class quality of life in the center of Paris than it is to live in New York where, mm-hmm. where we came from. So, you know, it's hard. It's once you get in a system with like universal daycare and, and quality universal healthcare, it's hard to give that up and, and go on, you know, eat what you kill and be a freelancer in Brooklyn. <laughs> so, so I'm not sure, but you know, there's always reasons that to come back to the States and I want to come back to the States. Uh, sometimes, you know, you get, you get profoundly homesick in ways that aren't rational and, you know, um, and that pass. But I do feel like after 10 years in, in France that um, when I return to the States, I, I'm homesick. But when I return to the States, I, I see a lot of the culture now uh, through the eyes of European. And when I'm in France, I feel distinctly American. So I, it's not necessarily that I always feel like I have two homes. It's, sometimes I feel like I have no home. Um, which, which, which can be good for a writer and can be kind of, uh, hard for a son or a brother or husband or father, you know, um, on the human level, it's, 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 it's interesting though, to go back home, uh, things that I used to, you know, fish don't know they're wet, as you said, things I just used to take for granted now strike me. One of the things that strikes me quite profoundly is, you know, the, the level of violence in American culture, which is, you know, we spoke earlier about the terrorism that happened in France, but part of what was so remarkable about that is that it punctuated what are really placid days. You know, it really was violence in the middle of um, never any violence. And and in America, there's a kind of violence where, you know, you have a mass shooting in Sacramento that barely registers on anybody's yeah. radar because, you know, it's it's all too common. So that strikes me. Lots of different things just, you know, jump out at me. Uh, Do you miss hamburgers? I've already, uh, yeah, I've already gone on too long on just the, <laughs> the, the existential crisis of being a man <laughs> living outside <laughs> one's own home no, country. I, <laughs> I, I think, I mean, look, I think this that alienation, that sort of seeing things from 
outside the culture is hugely valuable for writers um, and lets you sort of, you know, that, that, that sort of emotional multilingualism is like hugely important. And, um, and one of the things that, you know, I, I think that Americans need to understand more is that it's American culture is a rich thing. Right. And like the, the so many of the forces i mean forget identity politics and all of, and the anti-racism stuff but just the very concept of uh cultural appropriation is one of the most un-american and i mean that in like a <laughs> literal sense i don't mean like you're a traitor i just mean it's like that's just not an american idea because the whole point of this right. country you don't get jazz and the blues if you don't have black people using European instruments, you know, and all that kind of, you don't, you don't get almost anything that is great about this country without some form of cultural appropriation. And absolutely. And to think that like somehow people of a certain skin color own a certain cuisine. And so you can't have, you know, Southwestern or, you know, Korean tacos or something like that uh, without being a bigot is just, it's the kind of thing that I, I, I feel like it's a suicidal turn in the culture, but I also think it's unsustainable because most normal people are just like, are you kidding me? This is, this is such a rarefied complaint. It's unsustainable. It's a kind of power play by people who are often not um, uh, the most marginalized. Um, it's kind of policing um, and gatekeeping. But it's not American. It's not what most people want. And ultimately, I think it's uh, far too boring to mm -hmm. to succeed. I think that actually um, some of this stuff uh, will necessarily have to like burn itself out because it's just profoundly unexciting. Um, you know, I, I, I'm blanking on whether Murray said productive antagonism or antagonistic cooperation, but the idea is there. It's this idea that um, ethnicities peoples, regions, cultures collide with each other. And it's a kind of, you know, dialectic. You, you get, you know, a thesis and antithesis and you get a new synthesis that's greater than the two terms you started out with. That's, that's what American, you know, life has been like from the beginning. And that's what's made it so profoundly interesting and compelling to the rest of the world. Um, you don't get, you know, hip hop without, uh, you know, people taking electronic, uh, instruments and music and machines and, and, and really applying a kind of creativity that couldn't have come from anywhere else, but certain neighborhoods at the time, uh, you don't get jazz without European instruments, but black kind of senses of rhythm. I mean, this is the beauty of life. And you don't get rock and roll unless you have white people ripping off black exactly people. i mean, like, you it's can't just get a croissant unless you have French, uh, pastry chefs ripping off. Turkish bakers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the croissant comes from Turkey, but you know, it, it was it was spiffed up in <laughs> in France, and we're all happier for that. I mean, this is humanity. This is this is it's it's very sad to me, but you know, ultimately, I think it's it's it's, it's not going to prevail. I think I think you're right because it, at the end of the day, it actually doesn't satisfy basic human wants, and particularly but we're curious of, about each other's culture. I mean, there, there there there's ways to disrespect, but there are so many ways to respectfully engage and take each other's culture seriously and also innovate and make things your own. I mean, the idea that there's some type of structural power that prevents certain groups from participating in other groups, um, cultural contributions, but only works in a one way. 
I mean, that's unsustainable. We're all increasingly mixed. I always hope that some of this, some of these problems will resolve themselves just the more interconnected we become, but uh, I'm a little bit less optimistic that that will just take care of itself uh, through, 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 through interconnection. Um, but I think, it, I think ultimately it will fail because it's boring. Yeah, I think that's right. And yeah, there's no second act to so many of those things. It's just, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know, <laughs> it's like, where do you get over there? You know, and it's, it is <laughs> weird. I mean, I, we're going to finish this thing off, but like, it is very strange to me how, parts you know a, a certain subset of a sort of woke elite is utterly convinced there are almost a near nearly infinite number of of genders and sexual orientations that you can come up with almost any combination of of wants and desires and get called a new gender um but you can't mix mexican and asian food <laughs> I mean, it's, just, it's very weird to me you know yeah there, we should just there should be more more choices that sounds like a good <laughs> across the board maybe that's the that's the plan <laughs> all right so thomas chatterland williams thank you so much for finally doing this we've we've tried to get you on here for a while but you are um you are a peripatetic fellow and um <laughs> you've, you've got things going on uh but i uh, really appreciate it and hope you'll come back Man, it was a pleasure. I'd love to come back. Thanks, man. Okay, so Thomas has uh, left the studio. Um, I found that really enjoyable. Um, and uh, he's clearly a decent, smart guy. Um, and it was a nice change of pace from the usual conversations around here. And uh, curious what people think about this one. And also, uh, you know, send me your feedback about the two-parter with Continetti. And, uh, sorry if I've been dyspeptic of late, but it is what it is. And, um, please become a member of the dispatch. You know, I mean, if, if you, if, if everybody who listens to this podcast, who isn't already a member of the, of, of, of the dispatch became one this week, we could do all sorts of things. We could finally take back Canada from, uh, the, the enemy and make it part of the United States. We could make 12 minute brownies in seven minutes. I mean, there's really just no limit to what we could do. And we could do all sorts of exciting new things with this podcast as well. Um, anyway, uh, thanks again for listening. Thanks to Thomas Chatterton Williams for coming on. And um, I'll see you guys next time. C'est pas possible. C'est un podcast. <laughs> oh, you're lucky. I'll be out in it's a cado. I'll be out in I'll be out in a little while, okay? I just have to be you gotta be a little bit quiet. Okay. I'm just gonna do a talk, be quiet, okay? Thank you, baby. <laughs> <laughs>